Okay, we are one minute past the hour. I do not have any announcements. So, Robert, take it away if you're ready. All right. Well, today we are covering a bunch of text. So I am going to read it in chunks. I'm going to read what we have left of Chapter 4, then we talk about it, and then I will read Chapter 5. Okay, so I will begin with uh, Chapter 4, verses 43 uh, through the end of it, 54. After the two days, he departed from there to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all the things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves had gone to the feast. Now he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son, who was about to die. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my child dies. Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. While he was on his way down, his slaves met him and told him that his son was going to live. So he asked him the time when his condition began to improve, and they told him, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that it was the very time Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed along with his entire household. Jesus did this as his second miraculous sign when he returned from Judea to Galilee. Okay, I'm going to stop there, talk about that briefly, and then we will go on. So mostly we have kind of two scenes here. One, Jesus returns to Galilee, and remember last week he was in Samaria, and we, we talked about that. And he has this this little saying, this proverb, where he says that the uh, a prophet has no honor, or let me read it exactly here, in his own country. Uh, no honor in his own country. Well, what does he mean by that? As he's returning to Galilee, his reputation precedes him, right? The, the, guy, the, the guys from Galilee, they saw what he did at the feast, and that happened in John chapter 2. So we read that already. And so they believe in Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before. What exactly do they believe is a little bit unclear. And, and then Jesus says this, that the prophet has no honor in his own country. Well, let's begin by, by pointing out that this has a historical basis. The, the Jews had traditionally rejected their own prophets. And at times, they had been quite crude to them, um, to the point of, of killing them. Um, and I, just as an example, I cite uh, Hosea 9.7. I'll read this. It says, The time of judgment is about to arrive. The time of retribution is imminent. Israel will be humbled. The prophet is considered a fool. The inspired man is viewed as a madman because of the multitude of your sins and your intense animosity. But now Jesus is applying this idea to himself. Well, the Galileans in this scene, they seem to accept him, which creates then this confusion. Like, what, what is Jesus talking about? And really, there are two possibilities. This is not that big of a deal, but, um, you know, I figure we would discuss it. Either Jesus is pointing to the difference between the Galileans and the Samaritans. Like, the Samaritans did not require a miracle just some prophecy and they truly seem to have believed in him and the Galileans they saw actual miracles and they are still uh, perhaps not believing in in like the true sincere meaningful way or um, Jesus could be talking about the Israelites as a whole right that now he's going back from Samaria to Israel um, and it is you know going back to his own people and his own people did not or at least up until this point have not received them near as well as, say, the Samaritans did. Well, um, and that is, a, that is a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. So that, so that latter option perhaps fits a little bit better with the Gospel of John. Well, and then we have this scene with the royal official, right? So this royal official comes to Jesus and says, My son is sick. Please come with me to heal him, right? The, the royal official is from a different city, 
So they would have to traverse about a whole day's worth. Who is this royal official? I think that this is important because it kind of adds to the scandal of the Samaritan woman and really the Samaritans as a whole. The royal official would have been despised by the Galilean Jews. And I don't think that that's strong of a word. That's, too, I mean, it's not too strong of a word um, because the royal official, there's really two possibilities. One, he was Roman. And remember that the Jews were occupied by the Romans and they, therefore the Jews hated the Romans. They, they you know, they, there's different religions here. Uh, there's, there's different cultures and the Jews were, were very proud as a people. Um, they, they have huge animosity towards their conquerors. In fact, the Jews expect the Messiah to liberate them from the Romans. Okay, so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that this royal official is what we would call a Herodian Jew or a Jew of the court of Herod. Herod was the ruler of uh, that region. He was a Jew, but he really had no regard for the, or very little regard for the Jewish religion. And I can give you some examples of this. One, the city that he lived in, that he actually built, Tiberias, uh, he built it on a graveyard, on an ancient graveyard. And so the Jews considered the whole city to be unclean. Uh, not only that, but uh, for example, he married his half-brother's wife, which was viewed as, as incredibly sinful. Uh, and John the Baptist actually confronts Herod, and eventually Herod has John the Baptist decapitated. So it, it kind of gives you a sense of who Herod is and the, the interactions that he had with kind of the common Jew or the, or the truly more religious Jew. Just as a side note, I am talking about uh, uh, Herod Antipas. There's a bunch of Herods at this time. I get confused. You would just have to Google a whole family tree. We don't have to get into that today. Uh, but it, it it just gets complicated because multiple generations there uh, have the same name. And what is the conclusion of this story? It is really quite amazing because... The, this ruler, who again would have been despised perhaps even more than the Samaritan woman, because he would have seen he would have been seen as an oppressor of the Jews. He believes, right? He believes and his whole family believes after his son is healed or his child. I don't know if it says son or just child. Um, but at any rate, um, his child is healed. And so it starts to create this trend right, where the Samaritans believed, this royal official, and again, royal official interpret that very, very negatively. Essentially, this oppressor has believed and his family has believed. Uh, and yet, who has not believed? The Jewish religious leaders have not believed up to this point. We do see some Jews believing, um, but certainly not the religious leaders. Even Nicodemus has this interaction with Jesus but Nicodemus does not reach that point, right? We are just kind of left with this cliffhanger. So that's how chapter four ends. And then we move into chapter five. I'm going to read uh, most of chapter five. I may stop and then, and then read the last little bit later. Okay, so uh, beginning on verse one of chapter five, it says the following. After this, there was a Jewish feast and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is... Sorry. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool called, and I'm going to call it Bethesda. The the word you see on the screen, if you're following on the blog, is different. I'm going to explain this real quick. The 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 word that the NET translation is using is more correct. is is truer to the original, but it's much harder to pronounce. So I'm going to use the more common uh, word that was used in in you know uh, older translations. Okay. Uh, a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five covered walkways. A great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. Now a man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and when he realized that the man had been disabled a long time already, he said to him, Do you want to become well? The sick man answered him, Sir, 
I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately, the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and started walking. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and you are not permitted to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped out since there was a crowd in that place. After this, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happens to you. The man went away and informed the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the one who had made him well. Now, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, My father is working until now, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. The son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he does and will show him greater deeds than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but has assigned all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes, the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the solemn truth, a time is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, thus he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted the Son authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come out. The ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life, and the ones who have done what is evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. So I'm going to stop there. So there's a clear break in the, in the theme, and if we get to the last few verses, great, and if not, we can cover those next time. Okay, so... The scene has changed here, right? So so if we're keeping track, Jesus was in Samaria, then he goes up to Galilee, and now he's back in Jerusalem. And he goes to the pool of Bethesda. Uh, there must have been some kind of tradition at the time, some kind of belief that the pool had healing powers. So there's this man who's disabled, and, and he's been disabled for 38 years. He wants to go into the pool, but every time he will, he's going to go into the pool, quote-unquote, at the right time when the pool would heal him, somebody else beats him to the punch. This, of course, from a Christian standpoint, from a Jewish standpoint, it would have been nothing but superstition. But at that time, as well as today, it's common, right, to believe that certain bodies of water have healing properties. You will notice, by the way, or you may have noticed, that there is a verse missing. I believe it's verse five. Um, if if you if you go back and actually count the verses, you'll notice that verse uh, there's a verse there that's missing. We covered this in the very first session of this Bible study, where I talked about textual criticism and how sometimes there's some verses that are that we're not sure of, and uh, sometimes then we'll leave them out because they're really in question, and that's one of those verses. In case you're wondering, that verse doesn't have any like secret knowledge. What it says is, because the, an angel comes down and stirs up the water. So it, it's explaining the superstition, right? People believe that whenever the water would like stir up, it was because of an angel. And so that's when you had to get in the water and be healed. Uh, but really, nobody believes that that verse is original. It may have been inserted later to explain the whole situation to an audience that was not familiar with it. At any rate, these pools... Uh, th there is external evidence that confirms their location. 
so we believe we know exactly where they were located. They were very large. In fact, it was two twin pools about the size of a football field and, and quite deep, about 20 feet deep. Um, just so you can kind of picture the scene, there would have been lots of people bathing there, um, you know, not not just for not for the miraculous reasons, just because it's hot and people want to go to the water. Well, so Jesus tells this man, do you want to be well? And, and right, this man says, I can't get in the pool at the right time. And Jesus says, just get up and walk. Well, sorry, I skipped the, the key, the crucial part. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Well, that is a big deal. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. Now, notice in the text that it tells us it was one of the one of the Jewish feasts, right? One of their festivals, which, which is a big deal. A lot of Jesus' main uh, discourses and actions come during these feasts, including his crucifixion. Um, but in this case, John doesn't specify the feast because that's really not what matters in this story. What matters is that it's the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Because if, if we don't really have a solid understanding of that, the rest of the conversation just doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I imagine everybody is familiar with the idea that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. That would be the Sabbath. That's in Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 3. And I'll read that right quick. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. By the way, in, in Jewish literature, it's very common to repeat something, to repeat it multiple times to emphasize it. Um, that way, you know, in English, we might emphasize emphasize things differently. We could put an exclamation mark, or if we're speaking, maybe we would get louder. Well, in the Jewish culture, the way you would emphasize something is saying it multiple times. So if you, if you see that in the Bible, it's not someone being redundant. It, it really is kind of a cultural difference between us and them. At any rate, it is. It, this is a special day from the beginning, right? from literally the beginning, from Genesis. And then this special day, God commands the Israelites to keep, and it is very, very important. Um, the only way I can really emphasize that is by reading Exodus. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Exodus, but uh, notice, well, first first of all, Exodus 20, verse 8, is from the Ten, the Ten Commandments. Okay? And it says the following, Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, sorry, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or the resident foreigner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Nobody is to work on the Sabbath, not just the Jewish people themselves, but anybody who is with them, a foreigner, a slave, does not matter. And it gets even spicier, so to speak, because when you get to Exodus uh, 31, verses 12 through 14, uh, you know, what happens to somebody who breaks this commandment? The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, surely you must keep my Sabbaths. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So you must keep the Sabbath, for it is holy for you. Everyone who defiles it must surely be put to death. Indeed, if anyone does any work on it, then that person will be cut off from among his people. Okay, huge deal. This is one of the Ten Commandments. It is it is very much so the sign of the covenant between God and the Israelites, and every and anyone who breaks it is to be put to death. So, the accusation of the Pharisees to Jesus, saying, "Hey, you broke the Sabbath," is very serious to us. You're right; this this carries so little weight, um, but it, it really does matter. And I'm going to skip Mark two, which I have there on the blog. I just kind of wanted to bring some 
some balance to the force, so to speak. Because <laughs> it's another passage in which uh, Jesus talks about the Sabbath. Um, but we'll discuss that if we get to it. Yeah. Now, what what are the ways in which the Sabbath is being broken? Really, in the text, we have two. One, we have the guy who's carrying his mat. Now, it wasn't illegal to carry anything on the Sabbath, but it would be illegal if you carried something so big that it would be considered work, right? So it's not like you, if you picked up a cup of tea, they wouldn't have been drinking tea, but you get what I mean. Uh, you know, that, that would not have been breaking the Sabbath. But in this case, clearly that, you know, this mat had to be big enough that you're seeing this guy kind of carrying this big thing. And immediately people identified that like, hey, he's working. He's, he's actually doing work on the Sabbath. This is not okay. And so they ask him, who told you to do that? Now, let's stop here for a second to recognize how almost funny this is. There's this guy who's been disabled for years and years, for decades, okay, for decades. So everyone must know him just like you would know, you know, the hobo under the bridge in your local town or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, we... Right, everyone would have been familiar with this guy. He is miraculously healed, and he's like getting out of the way, carrying his stuff. And the the remark is not, "Oh my goodness, who healed you? This is amazing! Praise God!" No, it is, "Who told you to carry your mat?" Okay, but very very odd. And um, and what's the other violation of the Sabbath, or or the alleged violation? I ought to say, the actual healing. This, again, is, is so sad that it's kind of funny because they, <laughs> the religious leaders here are mad that, that Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath. Now, was it, really, uh, was it really a violation of the Sabbath? The, even, even, if, even if it had not been Jesus, okay? Because we're going to get to some reasons why Jesus really can't break the Sabbath, but let's just assume, let, let's leave those arguments aside for a minute. There, the Jews always recognized exceptions for life and death situations. Okay, so even if you had to help an animal, or of course, if you had to help a person, if it was a, if it was a very important situation, you could go ahead and do that. And the Pharisees here are treating this healing effectively like a very minor uh, medical procedure. Uh, if, and so they're saying, yeah, this, this broke the Sabbath. Is this really a minor thing? Um, it, it doesn't seem like it to me, right? They're taking a very, very legalistic view of things. But let's actually, um, let's get to what, what Jesus says about this. Um, one, right, the, 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 the first charge is, or, or sorry, let me add one more comment here and I'll get to this. Then, then the Jews make two accusations. One, you broke the Sabbath. Two, you are making yourself equal with God. Now, this idea of equality, by the way, it doesn't mean that they're probably not intending it to say Jesus is saying he is God. What they probably mean is that Jesus is saying he has the same authority as God, okay? which is a little bit different here. It's not an identity accusation, but an authority accusation. Okay. So the the first um, what, the first charge of Jesus broke the Sabbath. What does Jesus say in reply? This is very clever, and and I think. It's probably the one part of the text that is easy to miss. Everything else, I find chapter 5 to be very much self-explanatory on its face. Um, but the Jews believe that God uh, did not fully stop working on the Sabbath, right? Because God sustains all of creation. In fact, God is the one who gives life. And because people are born on the Sabbath, like, right, there's babies that are born on Saturday, uh, then God must be working on Saturday because God is the one who gives life. Also, God judges the dead and people die on Saturday. People die on the Sabbath. 
so God must be at least doing that work. Jews also recognized that the whole world was God's courtyard, and so he was free to do as he pleased. So God really was not bound by the Sabbath. So you get this reply by Jesus that's very clever, that effectively says, as my father is working, so am I working. For us, that has no meaning. For them, again, he's reminding them of that. He's saying, hey, remember how you believe that God is working on the Sabbath? Well, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. So he, it has huge Christological significance, right? That Jesus has the same authority as God. What about the second accusation? Uh, when they say you're making yourself equal with the Father. This response is also uh, clever and kind of unexpected because Jesus, in a sense, could have said yes, right? But he would have said yes if the accusation you are one with the Father. But like I said, because the accusation is about authority, you're equal in authority with the Father, Jesus actually denies it. And he says, no, I am not equal with the Father. I do whatever he tells me to do. He shows me, right, like I, whatever I see him doing, then I do. So he's like my, my role model, so to speak. Um, and it is a father who assigns these roles to me, these roles of life giver and judge. He gave me this. Now, this, this might seem kind of odd to us modern uh, listeners, or, or perhaps it isn't, but what is the point being made here that Jesus and, and God the Father, they are one, right? They're part of the Trinity. This is one of the most complicated concepts in Christianity, right? They're, they're one in the Trinity, but they're not the same, meaning they're distinct persons in the Trinity, and they have taken distinct roles. So the Son has submitted to the Father so that they can accomplish this work of salvation. Um, and I, I included these terms in the blog just so that we're aware. You know, if we're studying this, we might as well kind of learn the terminology. When we speak of the different roles by the different persons in the Trinity, being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, sometimes we speak of the economic Trinity, right? So the economies of the interactions between them. Now, that is by no means separate from just the Trinity. It's a way of emphasizing their different roles um, as opposed to emphasizing their same substance. Then Jesus has this long discourse where he uh, describes himself as the giver of life and judge. And we have a very um, you know, Gospel of John type language here because there's a double entendre and truly there's sort of like a triple entendre when Jesus talks about being the giver of life. Jesus has just healed a person, right? Very much physically healed a person. So when Jesus at first says that he gives life, it very much sounds like he's giving like physical life, like restoring people. But then very quickly in the conversation, the, the resurrection of the dead at the end times comes up. And then as the discourse goes on, it's very clear that he's talking about eternal life, the same stuff that we saw, for example, in chapter 3. Um, but, but the text doesn't make kind of this clean break. Some of these terms kind of represent all these things at once, and, and that's a very John thing to do. Right? And, and I find that to be very, you know, very beautiful, how all this is tied together and we don't have to pick. Does he mean this or this or this? He really means all of it. Jesus is the giver of life in every sense of that word. Um, I, I wanted to remind us here of something we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that this hope of heaven for the Jew and for the Christian, right? It, it, is, a, it is a physical reality. It is the resurrection of the body. This was in the Old Testament, and I quote a couple of verses in the blog, but Jesus is very explicit here that everyone will be resurrected bodily. And then the, those who've done good are resurrected to eternal life. And those who have done evil are resurrected to punishment, to judgment. Now, um, 
you, you might be thinking, hey, what is this? What is this about? You know, people who did good, people who did evil. I thought it was all about believing in Christ. But this is why we can't. You know, we have to kind of read the book in order and understand the context. Remember, all the way back in chapter three, I pointed to the fact that John really makes no distinction between being of the light and doing the works of the light, right? And being of the darkness and doing the works of the darkness. Um, John very much presents this idea that if you are of God, because you have believed in God, then you will do the works of God. And, and there is no breaking that chain, so to speak. Um, and so that, you know, that, that very much goes with this comment of those who've done good, those who've done evil. It, it means effectively the same as saying those who have believed in Christ and those who have not. And you see that same language, of course, in these verses as well of, of believing. And Christ will be a judge. That's another role that the Father has given him. Um, this would have been scandalous to, to uh, the Jewish people. Not even Moses uh, would be able to fill those shoes. This was exclusively the province of God. So uh, Jesus is making some very large claims here. Um, let me see. Oh, and the last thing I think I want to mention on this before we get to the last little bit of chapter five, and I'll go maybe another. Matt, do you want to ask questions and then maybe I'll go another three minutes? Sure. Yeah, as usual, guys, if you have a, a question or a point of discussion, whatever you might like to talk about, if you'd just like some time to discuss with Robert or me, just type question in the uh, in the chat, and I will get to you in order when Robert is finished up shortly. Cool. Okay, so um, I just want to discuss a couple of more quick things, and then I'll open it up to questions or comments. Um, notice that Jesus says, why will I be the judge? And he says, because I... I am the son of man. This expression, it keeps coming up in the Gospels. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure of this. I, I didn't look it up recently, but I think this is the most common way in which Jesus refers to himself, the son of man. And you may be thinking, what, what is he talking about? What is this thing? This is a throwback to Daniel. Daniel is a book in the Old Testament. And I put the verses, and I, I will go ahead and read them out loud, but this is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Um, now, we're not just kind of guessing. We're, we're really pretty certain about this reference, uh, not, not only because of context, but also because son of man in the Greek is, um, I always struggle with this word, but it's a narthros, which is to say when a word is, is introduced without an article okay so really jesus does not say i am the son of the son of man he just says i am son of man okay there is no article there um and in in the greek translation of the old testament that the jews were using that's called the septuagint son of man is also introduced without the article so it's also an arthras um daniel says the following I was watching in the night visions and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the ancient of days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Effectively, this has been the plan of God forever, right? That Jesus would come and he would be the judge. I'm trying to be very brief here. Let me add one last thing and we will add it to questions because I really can't, I can't not say this. Um, there's an interesting exchange in this story where Jesus tells the, the person that he healed, hey, make sure you don't sin anymore so that you don't end up even worse. And that could give the impression that this condition, this disease, whatever we want to call it, is the result of sin. Now, that, that clearly seems to be the case in this story, but the question is, should we pull out like a bigger principle that people are sick, say when somebody gets sick, that's because they sinned. And uh, that's clearly not the case. I, I contrast this with John chapter 9, in which Jesus heals a blind person, and the apostles actually ask him, hey, who sinned so that this guy is blind? 
And Jesus says, nobody. The, his blindness was not the result of sin. Um, and so we, we really should not extrapolate there a bigger principle than, you know, than we need to. Um, and it's also unclear in what way was this man's condition the result of sin. Uh, we immediately think of some kind of divine punishment, right? But that's really not necessarily the case. Like maybe this guy, let's say, you know, stole something and then he was beaten as punishment. And that beating resulted in me being disabled. Um, so, it, but it could be supernatural. I'm not trying to like oppose the supernatural. I'm just saying we really should not imply more or infer more than the text allows. Um, okay. With all those uh, caveats, there's a little bit that I didn't get to. I will cover that next week, but I can open it up to questions or comments. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Um, I personally don't have anything super pressing on my mind um, other than I found your commentary at the end about having a medical condition being the product of sin or almost like some sort of punishment. I just, I know we're not getting into politics and stuff here, but the themes that apply from that to certain viruses of current relevance and what you did to deserve it and how you didn't follow certain tenets. I just think that some of those themes are interesting, how they reemerge in a different context, you know? And I'm so glad you brought that up uh, because that's a great example. Like imagine that Jesus had healed somebody with that condition right jesus could say to that person hey make sure you don't sin anymore so you don't end up worse so his disease would be the result of his sin but not in like a supernatural way just in the very hmm. natural sense that you did bad things and those bad things had consequences hmm. um you know okay but sorry. I, and i'm also fascinated with sort of the rules of work and the sabbath uh, but rather than get super technical about that, I'm going to open it up and maybe if we have some time, we can talk a little bit more about that. But Brian uh, is up first. So Brian, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Hey guys, thanks. Uh, well, my question is about something earlier, but since we're talking about sin and disease, um, it's just worth noting that this this isn't a general principle for, for people in general. This was a specific term of the covenant of, the covenant of Moses where God laid out the blessings and curses. If you obey me, you'll get all these blessings. If you, if you disobey me, then there'll be all these curses among them was plague and disease. So it's, so it, it would be a mistake to take this remark by Jesus as a, as a general principle. Um, like it's somebody today, if their kid gets cancer or whatever, well, you must, you must have done something to, to piss God off. No, it's, there are other things Jesus says in the Gospels that, that uh, you know, who sinned this man or his father that he was born. Actually, it's later in this Gospel. Um, nobody sinned. It, this was that God might, might be glorified. But anyway, that's like a whole giant can of worms, and I'm sure there'll be more discussion on that later. Uh, my question was just, uh, when you make the distinction in your notes, and I think, I think it was in your comments here, between... The res between life, eternal life, and the resurrection. What what do you mean by that? Um, I, I don't really mean much. I perhaps perhaps hmm. I should have phrased it differently. Um, but I, I suppose people could, you know, everyone is resurrected, but then not everyone has uh, not everyone has this eternal life that Jesus is giving. Right? Like some are resurrected to condemnation, and, yeah. and I'm not trying to take. I know Brian, you will be familiar with this. I'm not trying to take the uh, the annihilationist view. I, I was just trying to emphasize this resurrection and life everlasting after that, um, and and perhaps I should have just phrased it better. Okay. Yeah. I was just. That was all I had. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Uh, let's see. Do you have any other points you wanted to add, Robert? Or are we good to move on to the next one? No, no. I, okay. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, David, mine. You're good to go if you want to unmute yourself. Sure. Um, What's on I your just, mind? I uh, kind of noted the the bit where where Jesus talks about why he's doing these miraculous things to testify that he has been sent. Um. I was, I was wondering if you were going to cover that or not, but uh, if you have anything you wanted to add into that, feel free to. I, I just know that I struggled in the church growing up, 
where it always felt like there was some sort of arbitrary hocus pocus on when Jesus would do a miracle versus when he wouldn't do a miracle or Paul or Peter, um, you know, when he would, they would walk by someone and not heal them versus, you know, sometime Peter and John, for example, they heal someone who Jesus must've walked by dozens of times. Right. Um, and so just the idea that there is a specific reason to the miracle um, to be unbelievable um, to the only way to reconcile its unbelievability is that there is some supernatural work of God. It is a testament to um, this person, in this case, Jesus, but in the Old Testament, various prophets, uh, to having been sent by God to distinguish them from from false prophets. Um, yeah, that, that's the that's the little bit of the text that I didn't get to cover today. But but let's go ahead and bring this up since you did. Um, the one of the points I was going to make with the last few verses of chapter five is that Jesus explains right that um, Jesus makes a sort of legal argument. Jesus says that uh, you don't uh, you don't just have to take my testimony because in cases that involved the capital punishment, the Bible says one witness is not enough, right? You need at least two or three. And Jesus effectively takes on the challenge and says, fine, uh, you want, you know, two or three witnesses, then one witness would be John the Baptist. Although he clarifies, I don't really need uh, the testimony of man, but he goes ahead and offers it. And then who's his second witness? It's God. It's God the Father, right? And what he says then is these miracles that I'm doing is the way that the Father testifies about me. And this is huge because I think it's very hard to understand why doesn't just Jesus like heal everybody, just, just fix it all. Well, it's not time for that, right? That's going to happen in heaven. That's going to happen at the end of the story. The miracles happening now, including the healings, they are the way in which the Father testifies to the identity of the Son. Right, that Jesus says who he says he is. And that really makes sense of what's going on here. Right? Why didn't because notice it says at the pool there were lots of people that had conditions, but Jesus only heals one. Why? Because that's the time that we're living in now. We're not in heaven yet. It is not about healing everybody right now. It is about testifying who to who Jesus is. Does that maybe relate to your comment, or did I miss it, David? Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was great. I I just know that was something that I um you know, I, I struggled with a lot in the past, and just wanted to hear you talk about maybe explain more eloquently than I could to other folks. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Thanks, David. Uh, let's see, Sam is up next. Sam, go ahead and unmute your mic if you're ready. Hey, uh, yeah, more of just a uh, uh circling back to the comments earlier regarding the the two resurrections uh i've got my self-study bible here open and it uh it kind of goes into a little bit of detail it says that scripture teaches of the two resurrections hence a resurrection does take place now and men pass from a death to a life from the death of infidelity to the life of faith and from the death of falsehood to the life of truth from the death of inequity to the life of righteousness the lord jesus then was willing to make known to us a resurrection of the dead before the resurrection of the dead so basically drawing the distinction between the resurrection of the spiritually dead you know currently alive but they're spiritually dead so resurrecting their faith and then also alluding to like in revelations the final resurrection yeah i i think that's very true um in in the blog i wrote this one little bit that i'll read that goes right along with that it says notice that john you says quote will perish uh quote raises the dead and quote crossed over from death to life interchangeably there's a future reality will perish but it begins in the present, crossed over from death to life. So essentially, what I'm trying to point out here, that John, when he's speaking of crossing over from death to life, he uses terms that are both future tense and past tense. And so I would 100% agree with what you're reading, that um, 
this eternal life is a present reality. It begins now, but there's also something that's not happening just yet. There's a resurrection that's in the future. So there's it is both present and future if we know how to understand that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Sam. Okay, uh, let's see. Chris is up next. Chris, go ahead if you're ready. Yeah, thanks for taking my question. Uh, <clears throat> so, Robert, I have, a, I have a question that sort of picks up where David's question left off, had to do with the uh, the supposed, you know, the, the seemingly kind of random nature to, you know, when Jesus did things and when he didn't. And correct me if I'm wrong, it, wasn't there an episode where he fed a lot of people, it was the 2,000 or the 5,000, and then, but there was another time where he realized that they really just wanted to be fed and they weren't interested in his spiritual bread, so to speak. And he did not feed them. <laughs> right. He, he refused. He, so he didn't always give people what they wanted. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it was really not about the feeding, right? It was about what it symbolized, what it was pointing to. And, and we've mentioned um, already this, idea of signs as opposed to miracles in this study, right? But John calls these miracles signs. Um, so John is emphasizing all of this stuff points to something, and that's really what matters, is that it's pointing to something, uh, not, you know, like not the miracle in itself, so to speak. Hmm. Okay, Chris, I think uh, has, he's, he's already out of here. So thank you, Chris. Um, Brian has one more comment. Brian, go ahead if you want to uh, jump in again. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, just a comment uh, about the Son of Man references. We tend to read that with the omniscience of hindsight. Like, we know Jesus is the Son of Man. But it, it's this is just something to bear in mind as we as you, as you read the Gospels, which I'm, I'm not sure is it's universally acknowledged. It's, it's somewhat controversial, but I think as you read it, it'll it'll kind of commend itself to you the more you look at it. Um, he wasn't necessarily referring to himself in the direct sense when he's when he speaks to the Son of Man. Like you find throughout the Gospels where people ask him if he's the Messiah and he won't tell them or he 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 actively keeps it a secret. People realize he's the Messiah and he tells them not to go and tell anyone. So it would be weird for him to be, to refer to himself and in the third person as the son of man in public. So to his audience, it would have sounded like he was made. There would have been some ambiguity about it. Like, is he talking about himself or is he in, is he talking about when the Messiah comes? Like, it was definitely a messianic title, but we, we know that from uh, the book of Enoch. So when they heard son of man, they heard Messiah. But there was some ambiguity to his audience about whether he was talking about himself or whether he was foreseeing the coming of the Messiah. Like, if, if, was he continuing the ministry of John the Baptist, that is, or was he in, in announcing the coming of the Messiah, or was he talking about himself? And I think that that kind of, I think that adds, adds some texture to these exchanges where we see him uh, make reference to the Son of Man. That's all I got. Does that... Does that sound uh, viable to you, or what do you think? I, I well, I suppose it could be that his audience is not quite catching what he's saying. I, I think that I, I could go there with you. Um, but at least the reader of the Gospel of John would uh, would clearly catch that he's talking about himself. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not disputing that he is the Son of Man. Yes. Um, now I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying that to his audience at the time, that wouldn't have been so clear. We we know that reading it in hindsight, but to his audience, otherwise there's a there's a huge glaring contradiction, and that we we see him uh, keeping actively keeping it a secret that he's the Messiah, and then in the, then in the very next passage, announces makes announcements about the Son of Man. So uh, anyway, that's all I got. Feel free to pick that apart or do on it or no no i think people can judge that for themselves and and i appreciate the contribution thank you thank you brian yeah uh donald go ahead and unmute yourself we'll give him a, oh there he is okay 
There we go. Yeah, go ahead. Thanks. Um, uh, one of the things I love about this narrative is Jesus opens with the question that uh, I'm kind of thinking in the in the twelve step world, but uh, is applicable to every human being. But the first question is, do you want to get well? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and the guy responds with an excuse, really, in my my opinion. And then my response would have been, "Well, okay, bud, uh, enjoy your mat, <laughs> and good luck on the next thirty-eight years." Uh, but no, he um, he graciously heals this man, and that is uh, you know here's a, yet another example of what we call the scandal of grace. You know, why waste a miracle on this clown who's just been lying around for 38 years? It appears to be making excuses. But as as has come out in the questions and answers before, uh, Jesus is setting up a, a, a much larger uh, uh, illustration and uh, explanation of who he is and why he's here. So anyway, that's just my thought, you know. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Hmm. That's really interesting. Thanks for that observation. Um, just kind of the, I think it's a, an observation that applies socially very broadly. Uh, being unwell, I guess I, I, when I look back at the dialogue between Jesus and the disabled man, as I did when he was speaking there, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it as an excuse when I first heard it. And maybe you can chime in and tell me if you agree with that characterization or not. But that theme of I'm unwell and I'm going to give all sorts of explanations for and or excuses for why I'm unwell rather than giving myself a reason to improve or get better. Now, part of the problem for me is I don't know what this guy's condition was necessarily. When they say he's disabled, I mean, are we talking two broken femurs? He can't get to the pool? Or are we talking like, I'm just kind of lazy? What's, maybe you can uh, offer some more thoughts on that. I mean, I think the implication is the guy could could not move on his own because he says, you know, nobody, like when people try to get me in the pool, somebody else gets in before me. So he yeah. must've been really in bad shape. Okay. Um, but I, I'm so glad that Donald added that because I think that John is very deliberate in everything he says in his gospel. And so I think that we are to some extent warranted in taking this dialogue and applying it um, to a larger picture, right? Of, of God saying, uh, to us, to you know, to the potential believer, do you want to get well? Uh, and and yeah, it makes us think exactly like like he said. Like, are we going to give excuses or are we going to go? Yeah, I do. Well, and yeah, and I think to Donald's point, when I'm looking back at the dialogue here, whether his excuses are legitimate uh, or exaggerated, he does not give an affirmative yes. He does not say affirmatively, "I want to get well." Yes, I do. That's a notable omission I, that, that I didn't notice the first time. So thank you for raising that. If, could I make one real quick further? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, my initial, my initial observation kind of stems from my own personal lack of compassion. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, he, on the one hand, he makes an excuse. On the other hand, uh, as Robert pointed out, I think better, <clears throat> um, Jesus reaches in, <laughs> excuse me, to a lifetime of discouragement and heals this man. So hmm. that, I think that's probably a better, richer, and perhaps more accurate observation into this thing. You know, no, no matter how long this guy's been there, guess what? Here comes a mirror. What, what, remind me one more time, what was the title that you gave this theme? You said it's an example of, what was the title that you used? Oh, the scandal of grace scandal of grace that was it is that uh and that's something that you you say is recurring we're going to see more examples of this i think robert can speak fully into that okay <laughs> well yeah it, i donald is talking about this idea that um you know god is is giving to those who do not deserve it right and hmm. like we we could not demand uh jesus crucifixion if we take the biggest picture but even on the smaller things right um, we, we are not entitled to this. We cannot demand this. Uh, and yet God just does it out of his own initiative. Um, and, and so both from the big picture to the little picture, we see this scandal of grace of God giving to those who do not deserve. Hmm. Okay. 
Well, thank you, Donald. I appreciate that. Uh, we are all caught up on questions. So if anyone else wants to chime in again, just go ahead and put question in the chat and I will get to you. We do have four or five minutes remaining. Did you have other topics you wanted to address, Robert? Um, well, do you have any questions? You, you said you maybe had some thoughts about the Sabbath uh, or something like that. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't know if this is overly technical or not, but you're right that as someone who, obviously I'm not well studied in this stuff, the Sabbath to me as something of an outsider is like, it strikes me as technicality, but I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of understanding why this is so important and why you wouldn't want to violate it and why seeing a person violating it would be shocking worthy of the death penalty, however it's characterized. So if it's if it's that shocking, it's got to have some pretty technical boundaries. And if if you're if it's so offensive to see like picking up this mat is an example of the work that would offend that moral standard. I just I'm curious about the definition of that the boundaries of that, where like you see a guy carrying something in the street or something, is that for recreation or pleasure? Like if he's carrying a surfboard or something like that, um, what what are the differences between physical labor that would violate the Sabbath versus like the sort of exertion that's required to do a purely recreational thing? That is a very interesting question because it, it really is a question about how the Old Testament law actually works. And it, this is probably the most scandalous thing I've said on this Bible study, but the Old Testament law is is meant to work more as principles. And I, I, I'm not trying to water anything down. Don't throw stones at me. What I mean by this is that... Where, where's the scandal? <laughs> well, then I think okay, some right. people are going to take this like I'm, I'm just yeah, like... Right you know kind of watering the whole old testament down which ah, is not at all what i like you're not giving it enough sincerity you're not right, yeah I see. yeah okay. yes and and that's not what i mean what i mean is yeah. that god gives some uh broad principles and they are to be applied with wisdom and compassion and um the pharisees don't do that the pharisees add a bunch of rules to make them more specific right because they're going we really don't want to break this rule so let's make it super super specific and in that specificity, they kind of lose the purpose of, of, of the rule, right? Now they're worried about their own little technicalities instead of the principle established by God. Um, and this is actually why, let me read Mark 2, 23 to 27, okay. yeah. just so you see what I mean. Um, and then this is in the blog. It says, Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. So the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to his companions? Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, um, right, they, the Pharisees here are saying, you cannot pay grain at all. And Jesus is going, hey, we, you know, we're doing the Lord's work. Literally, I, I'm not using that as, a, as just as an expression. Yeah. And we're hungry. Is this not allowed on the Sabbath to pay grain so we can just eat it, right? To feed ourselves while we're doing the Lord's work. Um, so here's a clear example of the Pharisees just losing the plot, becoming so legalistic that they they no longer uphold the true principle of the Sabbath. Hmm. Um, so the Old Testament law can be hard to interpret because it requires wisdom and compassion, which the Pharisees did not have. Got it. Okay. Well, I did have two more requests for quick comment. I'm sure. not in a rush, so uh, I do have a few minutes. Um, Yep. Let's see. I think Brian had one more comment and then Sam has a, co a comment. So Brian, if you want to chime in once more, go ahead and then we'll get Sam in here. Yeah. I'll try to make this quick. Sure. Uh, to, uh, to, this kind of addresses the past three comments about, about this miracle. It, uh, sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I just promised to be quick. And then I just drew a blank on my entire train of thought. Sure, I but, can, uh, uh, I can get Sam in here if you need a, a well, minute to, it, it just came back to me, but oh, okay. uh, there's, there's a running theme throughout John's gospel. So it's, so it's worth kind of coaxing out here 
there, there's always this kind of tension between their institutional view of God and his requirements and the reality of God that's staring them in the face. Like, as, as Robert pointed out, like they knew full well, this was a spectacular miracle. This guy's been an invalid for 40 years and now he's walking around. They should be celebrating. But in, I mean, they, they know God just did something right here. Whatever, whatever we think about the law, the, the very one who gave us the law just did this. So that trumps it. But they couldn't they couldn't get their head there they couldn't wrap their head around that they had all this institutional baggage and it kind of exposes where their loyalties really were was is it is it do they really love god and are they really seeking him or do they just love the power that the institutional control gives them and you can't you see this like throughout you see it in uh you know the, his conflict with them at the temple like he is the he's the new temple um and that's that's set in contrast to the the physical building of the temple and the institutions around it. And, uh, you know, it basically, anyway, so that's, that's a theme that plays out and it's, and it, uh, it has application today. Um, we, we tend to, uh, we tend to abuse our authority and to submit hmm. to the wrong authorities when the truth of God is staring us in the face. But, uh, anyway, that's all I got. Thanks for, thanks for indulging me. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Uh, Sam, if you want a uh, quick last word, go right ahead. Yeah, just uh, commenting there on uh, what Robert was just talking about regarding all the uh, the laws and the rules that were set forth by the Pharisees and everyone in the Old Testament. It kind of got to the point where traditions became so enforced and so hammered down that over time, that they no longer reflected the actual original intent of those traditions. And those traditions became almost as important in their eyes as what the underlying, you know, word of God was or the rules of God. Like for, for instance, you know, you know, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, you know, Mm -hmm. don't misuse the name of God. Well, they took that to such an extreme that they would purposefully mispronounce you know uh the i guess was that the hebrew word for god or, or like if they were writing it they would purposely misspell it so that they couldn't even accidentally uh misuse god's name in writing or in word and they just kept creating rules upon rules and layers originally as safeguards for themselves but eventually those rules and layers became overburdensome and that's kind of what we see with you know all the uh, additional rules that they created for what to do and what not to do on the sabbath they lost the original intent and meaning behind it yeah it's self-defeating uh yeah it seems that's interesting it, it, like if you censor yourself so much that you don't talk directly about god which is sort of the entire point is is promoting the message and promoting the understanding uh, hmm. Okay. So maybe, I guess my concern about the technicalities, maybe that's kind of the point is to be wary yeah. of those, I suppose. Well, yeah, like, uh, oh, sorry, Robert. No, no, go ahead, Sam. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, uh, just like the uh, last speaker was saying, I mean, they kind of got uh, drunk off their own power because, you know, they were the arbiters of these rules and everything, and, you know, they were the ones who were enforcing it. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Robert. No, I, I was going to say we. Uh, I think Matt, kind of, what your question might be getting out of your line of thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it seems like the rule about the Sabbath is not sufficiently specific to ever merit capital punishment. Because, like, if you don't really know the boundaries, how are we going to put you to death for this? Am I kind of following along, or? Well, yeah, I get. I guess prior to this, I didn't understand that it was a a rule of that level of seriousness and if it's a rule of that level of seriousness there's got to be definition to it there's got to be clear lines and you had mentioned in in your lesson well the sight of this sabbath breaking was so shocking um that that people must know or have some sense of what those lines are and just without having a perspective on that i'm just curious what that looks like but uh yeah so you're 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 Thinking what I'm thinking, basically. And so let me add two things. I know we're past time, so I will make this very brief. But um, 
one one thing that I would say is, you know, to some extent, laws can only be so specific. Like, let's take our modern concept of negligence, right? What what constitutes negligence, which is the most common cause of action in civil law, right? Like normally if you're suing somebody else, it's probably for negligence. Well, our standard is what a reasonable person would have done in the same or similar circumstances. And we really don't get any more specific. That's literally the law of negligence, even in the modern world. Um, and so there comes a point, right, where specificity is just limited, uh, even nowadays. And the other thing that I would say is um, we should not, this is what I meant when I said the Old Testament had principles. The old, the, the ancient world did not have legal codes like we have now. Even when we speak, say, of the Code of Hammurabi, for example, you may say, well, it's clearly a code, we call it a code, but it did not operate as such. Even that, quote unquote, code, it's not the equivalent of a modern legal code. They were general principles then that the authorities were to apply but they effectively they always required a level of wisdom from the person applying the rule um and all of that wisdom had gone out the door like the commenters had, have already pointed out so i mm -hmm. will go over that again okay i uh thanks for uh explaining uh explaining all that detail to me and of course thanks for the uh commenters uh, thanks for the comments and the questions tonight guys appreciate the good discussion um, did you have any other points you want to add before we're finished up, Robert? Uh, no. Thank you to everyone who participated. All right. Well, have a great night, guys. Have a great uh, weekend as well. And we hope to see you back here same time next Saturday. That's 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you.